Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast, where the Rethink Energy team talks about the technology behind this week's energy news. Uh, I'm the editor, Peter White, and we have with us our solar analyst, Andrews Fontelar. Good morning. Hydrogen and aviation analyst, Bogdan Avramuta. Hello. And AV and oil analyst, Colin Watts. Hello. And we also have our product manager, Simon Thompson. Hello. Good morning. Hi, Simon. On today's podcast, we're going to discuss the formation of, of GM Energy, uh, which has already done a deal with SunPower um, to sell it battery or to use its uh, use the so- its solar, uh, and with PGE to supply homes with battery. Um, and we'll ask if the aviation industry is not headed for complete disaster, with its view that it can't decarbonise before 2060. And finally, we'll look at how EV sales are shaping up, um, despite the fact that car sales are significantly down. And we have a new report out on that this week. So, um, and then, of course, we'll, uh, we'll see, if, um, see what caught Simon's attention this week. First, let me talk a bit about um, GM Energy. Um, General Motors has decided it's going to take its Ultium, Ultium battery division up against um, rivals like uh, Tesla to install in residential homes. And the first thing it's done is partner with SunPower. Uh, It says it will offer apps and cloud services to manage residential electricity and home charging and allow GM cars to support two-way charging so that homes can run off a car battery. it says it's going to make SunPower its exclusive solar provider. I can't imagine. Um, so I can't imagine that SunPower can increase its number of homes that radically. Um, so, I, 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 and given that um, GM will only be able to make about six hundred thousand cars by twenty twenty five that are EV, um, it doesn't look like that's going to be too onerous a task. But it's also done deals with PG&E, Con Edison, and the New Hampshire Electric Cooperative. Sorry, Simon. Yeah, I was just going to say, what kind of company is SunPower? I I was under the impression it was just installing, um, you know, solar panels on roofs. But it's a lot more than that. No, no, I don't think it is a lot more than that. I think it installs solar panels on roofs, and it's got thousands of installers and it's also got deals with all the battery makers um, and it also has um, ways to organise finance for that so so I think it's it's very much um, recognised by installing um, uh, solar panels but but increasingly in, in certainly in the States it's, it's more important to be installing battery as well which is obviously why it's caught the attention of GM. And again, is it that way around? I mean, sometimes I think we 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 miss a trick here. Uh, I don't know if you remember. Some power did a deal with um, First Solar uh, a while back, and um, what what it did with First Solar was, is it decided it's going to make a tandem using CDTE. Yeah, with silicon instead of perovskite. Yeah, um, and, uh, and be the exclusive um, uh, um, deliverer of that. So that, that's going to give it a huge leg up in the uh, residential market. 
And at the time, Andries assumed that first Solar was the first uh, was was the mover, you know, the initiator of that deal. But I think someone like Sunpower just knocks on the door and says, "If we guarantee to take all the output, do you think you can make these?" And they go, "Yeah, we can make those." Um, and it might it might well be that, that that General Motors has wanted to make this move for a long time. Um, and that some power has knocked on its door and said, well, you know, we can install all the solar for it. Yeah, that removes a headache for you. And when, when you have a tandem that I think would sti still be fairly thin film, even with a sort of fairly lightweight, even with silicon involved, um, you can fit a couple of kilowatts onto an EV. Is that significant or, or do you really need a lot more than just a couple of kilowatts to, to run an EV to charge it? No, I don't think I don't think you need. Um, I mean, most home EV chargers take four to five hours. So divide that into the amount of charge you're going to need. Um, I, I think that would be sufficient. Because hmm. I, I heard about that combination in China uh, recently on the part of one of the perovskite um, startups. So, anyway, just thought I'd add that. <clears throat> I mean, we can't we can't minimise the complexity of solar. You've got you know the amount of irradiation you have. You've got how big your roof is, you know how much you can afford, uh, and therefore what style battery can you charge, uh, and if you have a home battery, and then how much of that resource will be taken up by EV recharging. Hmm. And probably if you're parking a car, it's not too much of an onus to plug it into the wall and you probably want residential solar and battery anyway for the house so yeah, probably it, it's gonna get i think this is the start of a, a a flat out land grab i think i think that everyone is going to want to own the me mechanism by which people can charge their electric vehicle um keep their house going when there are a wildfires, B other natural disasters, C just just a a, um, a blackout, um, and run their house from their car. There's a lot of news coverage lately about Ford uh, Ford's truck, um, the the 150, um, and the F150 Lightning, and and people running their house from the car battery for three or four days. And that's that. You know, everyone, everyone's after that capability. I wonder if you could. Uh, previously, we've talked about EV adoption being uh, helped by population density and the density of infrastructure that that brings. I wonder if it, this is probably a bit silly, but I wonder if um, higher radiation would really help create a sort of EV bridge between California and Texas through uh, Nevada, Arizona, and New Mexico. <laughs> Just because it's sunnier there. I mean, it's very sunny in Arizona, for sure. But probably the EV and the battery is the big spend obstacle, not the not the solar power. Yeah, yeah I don't see people borrowing um, solar power from outside their home. Mm. Uh, I mean, it, it, I think you get, it gets to the situation where somewhere like Germany, it, it, it will be really advantageous to put in solar plus battery... You could almost live without the grid 
in, in certainly in southern parts of Germany. Uh, and the amount of money you save is so vast because of the high energy prices that you can pay back the system costs in, in four to five years. You know, and then that's with the addition of a battery. That's not just solar. So, so suddenly you've got, you're going to have people dropping out of the grid in places which are not sunny. Yeah, I mean, Germany is about as weak as it gets for solar and wind resources, all told. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And especially when you factor in land use and other disadvantageous things. I just looked at the electricity price. It's gone up again to over 800 euros per megawatt hour. And it's structural. The pipelines are what gave them cheap electricity. And, um, you know, and any new light at the end of the tunnel, well, it's quite a long tunnel. I'm, I'm waiting for the pressure that's been applied to the pound to suddenly change polarity and be applied solely to the euro. Because I don't think people realise how what, what, what a poor energy position Germany is in. I think that while Germany is very much the key factor with regards to euro kind of levelization and where that will be going, I think the pound is pretty uniquely, like, you have a singular entity. And while Germany is the primary entity, it's still not the same level of exposure as the pound had to horrific decision-making in recent weeks. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, that's true. Um, and being part of the EU, Germany can buy excess electricity from France and EDF, um, you know, in its nuclear, uh, 50 nuclear power stations, um, in periods of great need. So, yeah, yeah, it, it shouldn't necessarily um, uh, cause the euro to crash entirely. But when you, you add on places like Italy and, and some of the smaller um, eastern states that are almost entirely dependent on Russian gas, you suddenly get a slightly different complexion. Yeah. Aren't they I'm not saying that they're like... uh, nuclear power stations, Germany? That'll take too long. No, no, nuclear power stations in Germany are, are on the way out. You know, they're be, it's about how long uh, they can keep them for. The current, rate, the current chancellor is uh, vehemently against them and wants them uh, squeezed out sooner rather than later, even at the cost, um, at the, at the cost it's going to bring. Um, and they'd rather have coal plants last a bit longer, so, you know, which they previously have been equally against. But, but um, and, and they, they tried to argue that France should cut out nuclear power. But of course, France is almost utterly dependent upon nuclear power, and it's lucky lucky one European country is because it means that it can lend some power to other countries in their direst need. So, to go back to the the original topic with some power, do you, what what do you think they'll do next? Do you think they'll become a, a not exactly a monopoly, but you think do you think they'll totally dominate the comp competition even more than they are? Okay, so I don't think that's the issue here. Hmm. I, well, I think, well, what, think what the, new innovation will no, they pursue instead? I think the issue here is that America is going to stop using oil to drive its cars. Okay. Uh, and one or two companies will inherit all that revenue. Yes, it's going to be electricity eventually, 
Will that stay with all the uh, current utilities? Is that an opportunity for anyone who's doing solar development? Does that purely go to the people that build the charge network? Um, and, and if so, is that the car companies who are stealing the oil companies' future revenue? This is a land grab. I mean, I keep saying that this tran energy transition is the biggest land grab for money that's ever happened in the history of mankind. And, 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 and therefore, everyone wants to partner with everyone and everyone wants to steal everyone else's business. It's going to be utterly cutthroat for the next 10 years. Yeah, I, I, I was going to say that just about General Motors, uh, we were very critical of Mary Barra, the CEO and, and the board of General Motors at the beginning of the year with their hesitancy to, to get into the EV market. But So, so is this a, um, a tick for, uh, you know, a, a, goal, a good, good uh, you know, a, a pat on the back? No, OK, so I'll tell you my read on this. Mary Barra, we were critical of in 2020. Not, not last year. Um, it, was, it was February 2020 when she swung the whole company around behind EVs, saying that they will only make EVs after 2035. <clears throat> Prior to that, she was talking down EVs. Um, she's copying Tesla. She wants her shareholders to know that she's doing everything to borrow the share price of Tesla. And she wants to copy Tesla into the power market um, and show that she can do as well with her Ultium battery that they can do with their 4680. And I think that's a poor strategy for uh, an incumbent car company and, and I, because of one simple factor. She, she's building two or three factories for batteries. She's building two or three factories for EVs. They won't come online soon enough the demand for EVs will be too high and she won't be able to ship any batteries into the um, home residential market. I think she's underestimating the popularity of electric vehicles once again. Carry on from that as well. I think, GM to be able to enter into the home electricity market, they're also effectively going to have to become a software company as well, aren't they? So shifting out from being a tech company and then being able to do that. Yes, you're absolutely right. And they, are, and they have gone some way to doing that. They have, um, they, they have software which runs in the cloud, which people can use to drive apps, things like recharging apps, things like um, uh, your connected car reporting back uh, and, and telling you when you need a service. Things like fleet management, all of that they've been building for a long, it's been building for a long time. Okay, that's good. Um, and there's a lot of software companies in Europe, particularly Volkswagen, who have not done so successfully at, at trying to become Google. And GM wants to push its advantage there, or its perceived advantage there. The, the problem it's got is, is that all these batteries are lithium-ion. Its Ultium battery is, is, is going to be lithium-ion. It's going to be uh, NMC lithium-ion. It's going to set fire to people's house. I was going to mention that they're the ones with liability. Yeah, they're going to be the yeah, ones that are well, uh, in that case. Well, unless some power is. 
<laughs> you got to remember, so they're doing deals with PG&E. This is hilarious. PG&E went bankrupt because it started wildfires which burned people's homes. And they came out of bankruptcy, uh, is it this year or, or, or late last year? Um, and there they are supplying lithium-ion batteries into the home market. I think they're insane. You think it's going to be fires all over the place? Yeah, second bankruptcy. The, the thing about this, thermal runway is, is very hard to stop. You can design it out. You can put uh, cooling pads in. You can, do, you can do all sorts of things. You can try to uh, use the battery management system to isolate hot cells. You can do all sorts of clever things, and they all cost money. So people don't do them. <laughs> and, and thermal runaway events uh, happen at a rate of about 200 a year. Uh, and <laughs> you just eventually you have to set fire to someone's home. Uh, as soon as you get into tens or hundreds of thousands of home, you have to set fire to someone's home. It's, it's nothing you can do about it. You know, it's going to happen. And it's just the wrong battery to do this with. Now, it could be that the Ultium battery division comes out with an NFP version, and that NFP version is a lot a lot more resilient against... Um, it could be that they have um, some... some uh, they, they borrow some technology from some other universities to control temperature inside the battery. It could be there's, there's, there are innovations along the way. Um... But I don't think that's going to happen soon enough for a company like GM to do a land grab in this market. I think this is all posturing for their shareholders and there won't be any shipments into this market for at least two to three years. It's a bit, bit strong. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> Let's move on. I've made my, my uh, opinions fairly clear on that. Um, so, <laughs> aviation. You've written a piece this week, Bogdan. Um, response to a statement by an aviation industry grouping. Uh, who are they and what did they, what did they say? So, um, recently, uh, the um, International Civil Aviation Organization met in Montreal, Canada and um, talked about the aviation industry's plans to decarbonize to 2050. And um, some of the things that they wrote in the report were um, <laughs> really funny. <laughs> um, one of them I mentioned in the article. Um, they said that um, unconventional methods like formation flying need to be considered to decarbonize, which is really funny if you think about it. Yeah. Um, you don't really see... Well, planes are not designed to fly behind one another and... Well, if you think about it, if you're unlucky, if you buy a plane ticket and you're unlucky and you catch a seat on a plane that's following and not leading, that trip is going to be so bumpy that probably you're not going to fly again. So <laughs> they might be right. <laughs> uh, is it going to be bumpy or is it going to be smoother? No, it's going to be very bumpy. Oh, okay. Well, why is that? That's why. That's why. If you, if you take off on a runway, you don't. You wait for the plane. So you're in a queue, and then you let the plane in front of you take off, and then you wait for about I don't know 120 seconds for the literally for the air to settle, so you can take off in a smooth um, environment. Okay. So uh, there's these people who are supposed to know more about aviation than anyone else on the planet, and they're suggesting something which is just dumb just to dis distract people from what the real solution is. 
Yes, exactly. And um, the their main solution is sustainable aviation fuel thing that we covered extensively in the past, so I'm not going to go into great detail. Um, sustainable aviation fuel, uh, fuel has some potential, but there's simply not enough collective will and planning between the aviation industry, the agricultural industry and uh, governments to make that happen. Right, in your aviation forecast, you're saying, I, I believe, that, that, that there is enough uh, material in, around that we could build an industry around SAF, but, but nobody has actually annexed it or doing anything about it. Yes, that's true. There's enough feedstock, uh, mostly coming from agricultural waste, um, that on paper could be collected and um, refined um, into sustainable aviation fuel. And uh, that was the industry's first instinct to do that. But actually, nobody's really doing it. Um, the number of orders and production today are very, very small. Is that because it's expensive? It is definitely more expensive um, to produce than um, jet fuel right now, even though jet fuel is, uh, because of oil prices, is going up in price as well. Uh, but this, I, I guess there's, there's not enough pressure right now. There's not enough motivation for airline operators to actually buy sustainable aviation fuel. Some of them buy, but the, the numbers, the, the other numbers at the moment, they're like 100 million gallons spread over like seven, five years. And um, aviation in 2019 um, burned about 109 billion gallons of fuel. So We're getting up to 1% then. Yeah, we're getting close. <laughs> getting um, close. Okay, so this this is executives in the ivory towers saying we don't need to change. And where have we met this before? It started in the coal industry, started in the oil and gas industry. Um, the the thing that's going to happen is a Tesla event. Someone's going to come along and say we're an airline and we only fly decarbonised flights, and they're going to be full every flight, and they're going to be at a charge of premium, uh, especially when carbon tax is applied to aviation, and uh, they're going to be at a charge of premium. And so suddenly, everyone's going to go, be panicked and have to copy them, and that's when the pressure will start to come on the engine manufacturers, and that's when the pressure will start to come on, these, on the airlines themselves. So, you know, they're waiting for their Tesla moment to happen, but, but of course, when you, know, you give General Motors and Ford their time again. They wouldn't be waiting for Tesla to happen. They'd be making it happen themselves because the share price is still uh, makes them worth almost worthless compared to Tesla. And that's going to happen. That's going to re repeat in the airline and the aircraft industry. Yeah, that's true. I agree with that. Uh, I think in this state of confusion and um, a lack of um, certain direction um, is going to actually benefit the industry in the sense that hydrogen will swoop in and to I'll, that, I'll tell you um, what, you, you should go on, um, on LinkedIn, uh, Bogdan, after this podcast, I and mean, you should write up who would fly, how many people would fly on an airline that was entirely decarbonised? Who would opt to fly, and what kind of premium would you pay to fly on it? And let's see if we can get a, um, a, you know, uh, get a, a movement going of people that um, say, yeah, me please. Because I think 75% of people would probably say yes. So I, I have a very sort of silly question. Um, 
Is sustainable aviation fuel sustainable in the same sense that burning wood pellets by Drax is sustainable? It's um, not. No, it's it's sustainable in the sense that you're not relying on um, extracting oil from the ground. You can just make it from uh, waste using the Fisher Drops process. So basically, uh, Fisher Drops process you put in carbon monoxide. Um, that's uh, something that you can get from rotting waste and um, hydrogen, um, and then you get liquid hydrocarbons. So it's not sustainable in the sense that, because once you get the finished product, it's basically identical to the jet A fuel that planes use right now. Well, I think he's right in a sense, because what he's saying is, do you still have to grow this, um, and, and does this still put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere? And it does. It puts less carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, but it was going I mean, into the atmosphere the same. anyway. It's saving, yeah. Yeah, it was the same once it's burned, but it just saves the carbon that would otherwise get into the atmosphere from the rotting waste. As, as we understand it, this is uh, crops, the part of the crops that you do not use to feed people. So it's, it's not competing with food um, manufacture. This is what's left after you've made food. And does it just rot? Uh, in which case, um, CO2 goes into the methane goes into the atmosphere, or does it... Um, or, or is it deliberately rotted into a fuel? Um, and, and it's going to end up in the atmosphere anyway. So that, that's, that's more or less what agricultural waste is. No, I mean, agricultural waste is going to become a major problem at some point as, as a methane contributor. And we're going to have to... Um, and people talk about sustainable farming, um, which are ways of stopping that from having a bad effect. But one of the best ways to do this would be to sell it all to the airline industry. But no one's out there buying it, and no one's really, you know, there's very few people researching it. And this is tokenism at its worst. Um, you know, and, and we're not really in favour of it because of this, the likelihood of, of trusting. You know, what, what, is it a good idea to trust oil and gas companies who said, no, there's no methane leaking from fracking wells, there's no methane leaking from um, the ground uh, until they were found out? and uh, shown that there were huge methane leakages right across the Permian Basin. So, you know, these companies are not trustworthy. Do we really want them in control of flight anymore? We want them broken up and, and, uh, and, and the people, you know, into retirement. We don't want these people involved again. But, if, but theoretically, it's still possible. So we, we would much rather see hydrogen flight. But at the same time... You know, this is definitely a possible decarbonisation route, which they're painting as if they're doing it and they're not doing it. Because they're untrustworthy. OK, so our last um, uh, piece this week is um, uh, Connor has done a, a, an update on um, how EV sales are looking. Yeah, you've got to remember that the last time we put out EV sales numbers... Um, we had um, we didn't have a Russian war. Um, we didn't have the huge contention in um, supply chain for um, for rare earth metals, um, and we didn't have the kind of um, EV numbers that we have now, which are which accelerate accelerating. And we didn't have a recession where car sales are still down between twenty and thirty five percent, depending on which country you pick. So um, we thought, oh, we'd best see how EV sales are doing, Connor. Yeah, it's really interesting because EV sales are still ridiculously high. 
you'd think that in the recession it would go down. But in a way, high EV prices have insulated them from that because the people who are purchasing EVs aren't affected by a recession in the same way that kind of the everyman is. And that's why regular car sales and new car sales of ICE vehicles, which are considerably cheaper, have taken a considerable hit since COVID and with um, the numerous pressures on ICE vehicles and just regular inflation changing priorities, EVs have been largely insulated from that in most, well, pretty much all. Right, but you're saying, yeah, but that, but that means rich people buy EVs, therefore the market's doing well. And that's not a long-term um, strategic, you know, outcome, is it? We, we need, no, we need no. at some stage for batteries to be cheaper so that the cars can be cheaper. I read, I read a, a piece of research this morning. Um, I think it's Pennsylvania University, I mean, Penn State. Um, they're just putting two few micron-thick layers of, um, of nickel into, into the batteries, and they're um, regulating the temperature uh, at which batteries operate. They, they put heating inside them. And, and their logic was you can now drive around with a much, much smaller battery because um, these recharge in about five or ten minutes. And as a result of that, you can now make, make a car for about half the price. And, and I was thinking, oh, that's quite a, quite a big claim. Uh, I'm just reading the scientific papers on it now. But it sounds like, that, you know, so there will be innovation that brings down the price of um, car sales, not by increasing range, but by decreasing recharge time. Yeah, exactly. Um, I was having a conversation on LinkedIn about the kind of differing size of batteries within passenger cars regionally. So I think we've mentioned it before, but with the US's yeah. love of large trucks and long distances, you need far more batteries than a European wooden hatchback who primarily just commutes. So there'll be a different kind of battery requirement regionally, even if the population may be similar. And have you uncovered any um, have any any evidence of that? The F one fifty uses something like twice the number of batteries compared to a not well compared to the average um, or compared to what is popular I, I, within Europe. At least I don't understand this. You see, this this Americans buy cars to be big and showy. I'm, so, I'm sorry, any Americans listening, it's just true. Um, and and the Europeans buy cars to get from A to B, and then park as efficiently as possible. Uh, Chinese are even more uh, frugal. They don't mind buying a tiny car just to move them, move them around relatively safely from A to B. Uh, so I, why are these national characteristics in play? Uh, because it, it, surely if you want to... Uh, the Model T Ford of, of the EV era is going to be a very small car that has decent range. And it's not going to be these gas guzzlers. I think it's massively cultural because, as you say, there's a pretty large difference between what people purchase cars for between different regions. In Europe and more so in China, you buy it to get from A to B and you park it and you don't want it to get stolen. <laughs> so you run something reasonably cheap that isn't worth necking. In America, <laughs> you need to be big and you need to be able to muscle others off the road and... 
Uh, I'm not sure that's limited entirely to America. You drive on an A road in, in England at, at, at commute time, and the, the, the speed limit will be 60, and the car coming up behind you will be doing 85, and they'll take their life in their hands, and as they go past, they're always an SUV or a particular brand of, of, of car, which uh, seems to convey status on the owner. <laughs> I, just, I find it just laughable that... that, that yeah, you know, and we're trying to get from A to B really quickly in a country that's just overpopulated, and, and where there's always traffic jams. It just doesn't make any sense. I think there is a bit of that in England, but at the same time, the Toyota Prius did quite well originally. There is a there is an appetite for smaller cars here. That's true. That was aren't true. It's quite well in America in as well. Uh, it was a butt of all like jokes in American uh, American sitcoms. You know, oh, I yeah. see so you've got a new car. Uh, is it a Prius? You know, yeah. I think that stigma is really emblematic of the kind of American attitude towards it, really, and why they're going to be struggling to produce as many cars comparably to well, Europe. I th- uh, yeah, but I think you've got to satisfy everyone's needs, haven't you? you you've oh, got to yeah. use technology to give the people what they want. Don't ask the people to cut out or change what they want. You, you, you have to make the technology stretch you know, make the envelope stretch. The customer's always right, even if they're patently wrong. I I mean, I'm a a strong believer here, and I think this is one of the few things I agree with Elon Musk over, um, that that you have to... um, You can't rely on people giving stuff up to to reach net zero. You've really got to keep giving them what what you've been giving them. You You know, cheap flights, big cars, whatever it is... But it has to be done in a different way. And, and don't expect the consumer to all turn into vegans just to preserve the planet. It's, it's, it's just not a reasonable assumption because, because they'll just stop doing it. And anyway, this is your EV update. And it's just gone on the website this morning. Um, and so people can buy into the service if they want to look at the numbers. How... How did the numbers change um, up to 2030? Are the EV numbers, ex- you know, have we got them right? Are, are they accelerating? Um, have we over-forecast them? It does depend on the region, but with American EV numbers, there was a slight over-forecasting in the original that is largely as a result of chip shortages and the IRA kind of delaying investment so that it's kind of reconfiguring the supply chains from being Asia-oriented to being America-oriented, which takes more time and will slow EV sales in the immediate, like up until 2025, and at which point it will resume on its trajectory upwards. In Europe, we got them largely right, but in Europe, the recession is likely going to hurt regular car sales more. So the main thing that was wrong there was the number of ICE vehicles is gradually decreasing in a lot of European countries. So okay. the UK, Germany. And in the big ones, in China, China. Up. Just continues going up. They uh, have all the benefits and very, very few of the downsides of all of the various geopolitics going on right now. They are still have a kind of a relationship with Russia. I'm not up-to-date enough on how that is. Uh, they have all the existing battery supply chain, and they have a consumer base that really, really want EVs and are happy to buy one that's extremely, extremely cheap. 
and can only go well that has limited range 100 miles right, yeah. yeah exactly but that's all they need and that's all they buy okay. so all right. they well, have well, let's not let's not give away the net, all the details of the report if you mm. need to uh, know how many EVs it's going to be in the next 10 years uh, come to the website www.rethinkresearch.biz click the, the um, energy button and down there in forecasts and data you'll find this report when you buy a report from Rethink Energy you get access to all reports for the following 12 months. Um, and if you need to ask any questions, email Simon at rethinkresearch.biz and he'll clarify that. Talking of Simon, Simon, you've read the issue today. What, um, what, what caught your eye? Well, yeah, it was in the renewable orders, actually, this week. And um, we've just come out of uh, Chinese uh, New Year, Golden Week. It, things went very quiet. But all of a sudden, it's boom. There's just millions of announcements. Um, and it's all factories, um, new factories in the polysilicon market, perovskite supply chain market. Uh, to uh, They're worth billions of dollars. So... Um, uh, why? Why now? So, uh, so uh, Andres, yeah, yeah, why, why before now? Before Andres piles in, uh, just to say, <laughs> Andres wrote a long article this week, which we haven't featured on the podcast because we featured it so many times before, explaining why. Um, but I'm okay. sure he'll All tell right. you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I don't think there's that many. I mean, you're saying there's a lot of Chinese factories and projects being announced. Well, actually, that's kind of almost always. The case anyway, but there, there is there there are some more um, this week and last week um, of these big um, desert complexes being announced than usual. I think it's because it's Q4 of 2022, and the whole desert complex. Uh, I think it was called a, a base project. You know, the, these multi gigawatt uh, projects with um, solar plus some CSP or wind and solar or wind battery solar and maybe some hydrogen. Everything. Um, the first of those are now being commissioned um, or, or soon will be, and. Certainly, well, probably not commissioned yet. Uh, the, the, the first is certainly be beginning active construction, I should say. Uh, the other part of it is, um, yeah, the, the, the perovskite was an interesting little aspect of it because as, um, as people who, who listen to us will be aware, uh, in the past I got a bit overexcited about perovskites and then I got a bit jaded about them. I thought, oh, they're having all these technical di difficulties. And now I'm coming back to thinking, oh, they actually they are alive again. Um, in fact, next week I'll be uh, publishing uh, an interview I had with Calix. Um, we, we spoke to them in um, in March, but anyway, so I'll talk about that next week. Um, but the Chinese are in on it as well. You've got a couple. You've got um, a, a consistent uh, drip, drip, uh, snippets of news about Chinese um, perovskite pilot lines on the hundred megawatt scale. Um, there's also one talking about. Uh, I think I mentioned it earlier. Um, talking about building integrated PV, it's pursuing a tandem, it's looking at putting it into EVs. And there was also a pilot project that was actually deployed in China a couple of months back. So, yeah, that's all I really have to say on that. Um, last point, I just, um, although, although it won't mean a lot to, to many of you, but Westinghouse just got bought. And this happened just after we went to press. Um, a couple of, um, of private equity firms Club together to get about $4.5 billion of cash, um, and they've transferred about $3.4 billion of debt. So the, the, the purchase price is about $7.9 billion. Westinghouse is the last American um, 
company which almost the last American company which builds old style nuclear plants and the rationale for buying it was oh there's going to be a lot more nuclear now that the uh, given the price of natural gas um, not if you've read Rethink Energy um, but <laughs> um, you know the price of nuclear energy is still massively massively too high but but anyway Westinghouse changes hands yet again I wonder if it will change its name on that uh, last bombshell, I think um, we're going to call a, an end to this week's podcast. Um, we'll be back next week talking about a whole new set of deals. And as I say, if you need to buy into the service, if you can email Simon at rethinkresearch.biz, um, he'll give you all the details. Thank you and goodbye.